Thank you all for being faithful to God in spite of the weather. Commitment is not really commitment unless there's something that's trying to get in the way of it. That's when commitment counts. That's when commitment is demonstrated. And so thank you for your faithfulness. And isn't it wonderful that God notices that he records and that he rewards our faithfulness? Um, thank you, Eunice, for all the hard work. I know she said Pastor Davidson and I, um, but I have to admit the one who was coming to bed at 3 o'clock in the morning last night wasn't me. <laughs> it was Eunice, and um, I thank her for being thoughtful of you, and certainly represents my heart as well. But let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you. It is a privilege that we are here. And we are here, dear God, with the hopes that you will speak to our hearts, that you will make a change within our spirits, that you will form us into the image of Christ, that you will transform our minds and our hearts, that we would be more like you. And so we invite you, dear God, to fill us with your spirit, and we invite your spirit to speak to our hearts and to empower our passions that we may live for you and be pleasing in thy sight and that we may carry out all of your decree. And so we thank you and we look to you to be our teacher, our speaker, our preacher, and to be the one who will illumine us. And we just give you the praise in advance for whatever you choose to do. We thank you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. We have been looking at a story in the Bible from the book of Ruth. Ruth is one of those small books in the Bible. And um, only a couple of them named after a female and the book of Ruth being one of them. And the reason that God gives us the book of Ruth is that it really does show us when there is a time of judgment on a nation, how the righteous still can prosper. You'll run into the word remnant many times over in the Bible. And the word remnant, it refers to those who are faithful to God in the midst of others falling away. The remnant still loves God, and the remnant, they're the ones who are blessed and supernaturally cared for by God in the midst of judgment. We see that in the book of Ruth. We saw in the earlier part of this sermon how Elimelech decided for his family that we're going to get out from under the care of Jehovah 
and we're going to a nation called Moab, and we're going to be under their God's care. It was a disgrace to the God of Israel. And if you remember the story, when they got there, things went downhill very quickly. Her husband died without explanation, then her older son, and then her younger son, and she is left in a destitute manner because there is no job, there is no provider, and she's in a foreign land. But some good news person went to her and said, Naomi, the Lord has blessed our nation. The uh, famine that we were undergoing, it has eased up and people are planting and harvesting again. And from that good news, she went back home. And sometimes we really underestimate the power of a few encouraging words. Sometimes we underestimate the impact we can have on people's lives if we would just share the good news with them. And so here in the book of Ruth, she, Naomi has decided we're going back to Bethlehem. And, uh, and, and so these women, they set out on their journey. And uh, Naomi has been there for some 10 years in the land of Moab. And both of these women are quite different at this point. One, 10 years earlier, she was blessed and she thought pretty highly of herself. And now it's 10 years later and she is a nobody. And the other woman, Ruth, was a pagan who did not know God. But now she has completely turned her back on her pagan background and she has fully given herself over to God. And for her, it's a new day. The adventure is just beginning. When she turned herself completely over to God, that is when things started going in the direction that we're going to find her in this book. She, because of turning her life completely over to God, she is about to change the course of human history. Let me tell you something. Big things are waiting to happen to a lot of people. And the thing they are lacking is that they have not turned themselves completely over to God. And when they do that, when they get to that place where their agenda is dead, and the only thing that matters to them is the agenda of God and serving God and being faithful to God and pleasing God, when they get to that place, that's when things are really going to happen in their lives. And that's where Ruth is. And at the end of chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in chapter 2, by the way, of the book of Ruth, but 
at the end of chapter 1, these two women, they go to Bethlehem, and when they get there, the whole town is buzzing, and, and they're buzzing because they're talking about this woman, and she is so different than the woman who left. They are talking, they are, they're, they're buzzing, and the women of Bethlehem, they're asking, can this be Naomi? And they're saying it because this doesn't look like that same promising woman who left 10 years ago. She went out 10 years ago and she was going to conquer the world and they were going to be in Moab and they were going to be prosperous. This doesn't look like that same woman who was ready to set the world on fire 10 years ago. This can't be Naomi, is it? And uh, in chapter 1, verse number 20, she said to them, she said, don't call me Naomi. She said, call me Mara, because the word Mara means bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. My life is bitter. It is not sweet. It's, it's hard. Is that Prince William announcing his presence? <laughs> we welcome the prince among us. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. It's been 10 years, but let me tell you, 10 years of living out your own agenda, 10 years of building on sinking sand because you've figured things out and you know the way to go and you know how to navigate life and all that, Ten years of charting your own course. Ten years will make a huge difference. She's got it all figured out, and she has a plan, and they're going to go, and they're going to prosper. And it's ten years later, and life has chewed her up and has spit her out. And uh, this is the story of Naomi and this is the story of so many other people in the Bible. And this is so many people's story in our day and time. People we know, they look so promising. And it looks like they're going to set the world on fire. And it looks like they're going to be the champion. And they're going to be the hero. And, and they're going to be the savior of the community. And we look at them 10 years later. And we go, well, that was a dud. 10 years makes a difference. And she's had 10 years of doing her own thing. She's got it figured out. And at the end of those 10 years, she says that life is just disappointing. It is not what I thought it was going to be. And that is the story of so many people. We read, we, we read the books about how to be successful. And we looked at the role models for how to make it in life. And we've had this plan, and we were going to work it out, and 10 years of doing our own thing, 
and it has been just totally fruitless. She says, I went away full, but the Lord, she understands that it was God who had done it to her. And that is often the missing ingredient. That is often the thing that we don't understand. That is often the mistake that people make, is that they think it was luck. They think that it was just a bad turn somewhere. They think it was somebody who did it. They think it was just the economy or circumstances. The thing I love about Naomi is that she understands that it was God who brought me to this place. Now, let me tell you, I don't know if you can appreciate this or not, but I am grateful for the fact that God will not bless me in my sin. I am grateful for the fact that if I am rebelling against God, that he is not going to let me prosper. I am grateful for the fact that if I don't commit myself wholly to God, if I don't live for him and love him and serve him and honor him and humble myself before him and love others the way that I love myself, if I just choose to just ignore God's plan, that God loves me enough to not leave me in my mess. I don't want to be successful apart from God. I don't want God to allow me to achieve without being faithful to him. I don't want to live my life with this false success and then have to stand before God and give an account for a life that, yeah, has some earthly recognition, but was no value to the kingdom of God and that I was a total failure as a servant of God. I don't want God to let me live that way. And so I say to God, openly, publicly, truthfully, God, if I'm not serving you, please feel free to shut down, destroy whatever I'm doing, because what I want is for my life to be about you. And that's what God has done for Naomi. And that's what God promises to you and to me, that if you're not on track with me, if you're just ignoring me, if you're just after your own thing, if you're just doing the nine to five thing like the rest of the world and God is not chief in your life, yeah, I'm coming after you and I'm going to make sure that life is bitter. I thank God that he loves us enough that he will do that for us and he demonstrated in the life of Naomi that, yep, I do that kind of thing. So they're going back. They're going back to Bethlehem. Remember, this is the days of Judges. Remember, this is before they have a king. This is before they have somebody who is standing out front and, and, and who is saying to them that we are one nation under God and we're going to serve God and love God. They finally got a king, and his name was Saul, and they thought he was that guy but he wasn't that guy. He was self-serving and really didn't lead them to serve God. But eventually they got David, and David was the one who brought spiritual revival to the nation. This is the days of the judges. This is when they don't have their act together. Everybody's doing whatever is right in their own eyes. 
And so it's a bad time. And so the famine has lightened up, but it's not over. There is still some hills to climb. There's still some wilderness to go through. Even though they're here in the promised land, there are some hard times that are still present and some hard times that are still ahead because there is still a nation who is rebelling against God. And God in his kindness, he eases up at periods when they're halfway trying to get their act together. And so here's the barley season and uh, they're coming back. But they're not the nation that God is calling them to be. Right now, everything is just in a mess. And uh, that's kind of the way it is here in the United States. Have you noticed? Sometimes God will allow his judgment to come down on a nation. Sometimes judgment does come. And I believe that we're in that place here in the United States where we're starting to see clear evidence of the judgment of God being upon this country because everything is falling apart so very quickly right before our eyes. And the psalmist asked the question, when the foundations, you know, the foundations, all those things that sort of hold up the nation, those things that hold the nation up, that hold the nation together. The psalmist asks the question, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? So that's a rhetorical question. There is an answer that is implied in that question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here is what is being implied by that question. We can come to a place where it's out of our hands. We can come to a place where God says, judgment is coming, and there's nobody who can stop it. I know that we're called to be salt and we're called to be light and we're going to be faithful to doing that until Jesus comes again. Because in the midst of judgment even, there are people who are going to be saved. There are people who are going to experience difficulty and they're going to understand that the only place to turn is God. And so they're going to be people, God is going to pluck them out of the flames of judgment. And so that's why we continue being salt and we continue being light because there will always be the remnant. There will always be the few that God will be adding. But when it comes to the nation avoiding judgment, we can get to the place where there is nothing that we can do. And we see that over and over again in the Bible. We look at our United States, and everything is falling apart. You know, there was a time when we could have some influence. There was a time when we could really make a big difference. There was a time when we could appeal to the entertainers. And we could say to the entertainers, hey, would you be role models for our children? 
Would you not smoke? Would you not drink? Would you not use bad language? Uh, would you have some church scenes in your movies and, and show some Christian people? And, 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 and there was a time when we could appeal to the entertainers, and you would see that kind of thing. You would see good influence that is embedded into the Hollywood productions and you can't appeal to that anymore because they don't want to be role models anymore. There was a time when we could appeal to people's common sense. Like, just think about it. If you just look at how things naturally are, just using common sense, like, what can a man do with a man? What can a woman do with a woman? You know what I mean? You could just talk things out just common sense-wise, and now there is no common sense that is left, and instead it's been replaced by emotionalism. We don't do things because they make sense. We do things because we don't want people to be offended. Common sense has been totally rejected. We used to be able to appeal to people's moral conscience. Does that really feel right to your conscience? Does it really seem moral to you? And, and now that's gone. Because the question is, whose morality? My morality? Your morality? Your truth? My truth? And there is no standard. There is no objective truth anymore. And so you can't appeal to people's moral conscience anymore to try to drive morality in our society. Used to be able to appeal to the politicians. And politicians used to pride themselves in being statesmen and in being ladies, and they would pride themselves in their character and in their nobility, that these are good people that you can trust. And now when it comes to the politicians that we see, we can't trust the political system anymore. It's like most of the politicians now are devils, and we're having to try to weed through devils, and we're always seeing all of this corruption and these news flashes about he's done this and she's done that, and it's like a, like a brood of snakes, and it's like devils now. And all of these foundations of our nation, we see that they're collapsed. The judicial system, you used to be able to appeal to the judicial system for laws that were just and fair. And now, it's a coin toss. Can you afford the best lawyer? Because the one with the best lawyer is probably going to win. Did you get the right judge? Because depending on who you get as a judge is going to go this way or that way based on their own values and political system? Is it the right cultural climate for the thing that you're interested in? Because if the culture is for it, you're probably going to get support from the judicial system, and if the culture is all against it, you probably won't. There was a time when it was no question about certain things, but now that society has accepted these things, the courts are going, well, I guess it's okay with us too, then if everybody thinks it's okay. Used to be able to appeal to 
commerce, even within commerce, morality is what drives fair trade, and fair trade is what drives wealth. And, and we used to be able to say, just for the sake of us being wealthy and okay and healthy financially as a nation, we need to be moral people. Now, everybody cheats. Cheats on their taxes and cheats on their charges and cheats on everything. And so you can't appeal to the system of commerce. The educational system used to teach character and good manners and used to teach right and wrong. And the educational system now wants to indoctrinate our kids and our college students. And, and, and the educational system is no longer driving morality. You look at the religious system, and you go, wait a minute, if you can't go anywhere else, at least you can go to the church and find morality. Really? Most church people now watch pornography. A lot of them, almost as many as are in the world, are going through a divorce and are living like the world. Most of the church people are living in secret sewage. There was a time when you could appeal to the researchers and the historians, and they would tell you, yeah, when nations are moral, they are long-lasting, and when they fall into immorality, they collapse from the inside out. Even if no enemy assails them, they still collapse. The researchers can tell you that when people are moral, they are, that they're healthier and they live longer, and insurance was cheaper for people who didn't drink, who didn't smoke, who didn't do high-risk activities, and, and you could appeal to so many sources previously that morality is the way to go. All the foundations are collapsing. And there's nowhere to turn to make an appeal. Let's be one nation under God. Nobody is wanting to hear that anymore. Let's live according to the Bible. Let's call sin, sin. And let's call righteousness, righteousness. Nobody wants to hear that anymore. All the foundations are quickly collapsing. What can the righteous do? Is there anything that we can do to save America? The way that it works is that America has a choice, and we can't choose for our nation. We can be salt, we can be light, but we can never force America to be one nation under God. We can never force this nation to avert, to avoid the judgment of God. We don't have that power. The nation of Israel 
if anybody was going to be the nation that remained under God, <laughs> that was the nation. These were the people that God brought literally out of captivity, out of the prison house and turned into a nation. He gave them a land. He gave them a national identity. He gave them a constitution. And he blessed them with the land of milk and honey. And he blessed them in every way possible. And even that nation turned away from God. Why? Because even though they had such a wonderful beginning, they had the problem of the human heart. It's the human heart where eventually people just turn away from righteousness. He spoke through the prophet Isaiah. People read the prophet Isaiah and they think that Isaiah is calling a people back to God. <laughs> Did you read the opening of the book of Isaiah? God said, the whole head is sick, and God said the entire heart is afflicted, that this nation is rotten, rotten, rotten to the core. And God said, and as for this worship that you all are doing, God said, I'm sick and tired of your church services. God says, church and sin, those don't go together. And God said, I'm not impressed by the sacrifices, by the songs, by the prayers. And God told the nation of Israel, in fact, when you pray to me, I'm not listening to you. Isaiah wasn't sent to call the people back. He was preaching the funeral of the nation. God said, the, the head is gone and the heart is gone. You remember Osama bin Laden? Remember him? When the SEAL teams went in, you know what they did when they found him? Two to the chest and one between the eyes. Why? Take out the heart, take out the head, make it irrecoverable. And God said, that's where the nation of Israel is. And God says, any nation can go there. What can the righteous do? Did you know that if we were talking about not a whole nation, but just one person? Did you know that if we were talking about even just one person, one person can come to the place where God says it's a done deal, there is nothing that you can do to help him or help her. I am done. They're going to die. And that's 1 John 5, 16. John says, there's a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. John is saying, I don't advise you praying about somebody who has crossed the line and God has already passed sentence and they're done. John says, I wouldn't even recommend that you pray about that because God's not listening. What can the righteous do? Here's the good news. The book of Ruth 
is about how God favors the faithful in the midst of the judgment that is raining down against the wicked, that God still favors the righteous. And that's what the story of Ruth is about. And that's what Peter talks about. He said, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. That's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9. Do you know what God is saying there? God is saying this. God is saying there are some people, they have made their bed, and that's where they're going to be for eternity. They haven't died yet, but they're going to die wrong. I know how to keep them where they are in this wicked state, while at the same time keeping the righteous from trial, from tribulation in the midst of judgment. That's what 2 Peter 2, 9 is saying. God says, when it comes to the righteous, don't think that it's time to give up. Keep being righteous, keep being faithful, keep doing what you're doing for God because in the midst of the trial and tribulation that I'm sending on the wicked, I'll keep you. That's why we don't quit. And so turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. And uh, we're just going to look at a little bit in this chapter of Ruth chapter 2. In Ruth chapter 2, you got to see how this chapter opens. Because in Ruth chapter 2, verse number 1, that's the point of the chapter. Ruth chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Thank you so much for standing with me. Just to honor the reading of the words of our great God and King. Now this little verse, if you read quickly, it seems like there's nothing here. Let's just move along to the rest of the story. This is the story that is here in verse number one. Because what this is saying is that these women who have returned to Bethlehem, they are penniless, they are jobless, and, and, and they don't have any kind of future ahead of them. They're going to have to be beggars for the rest of their lives. They have to be nobody. Everything they had is now gone. But the way that this chapter opens, this is God who is saying, hang on a second, because in the midst of all this darkness, I bring so much light. There is hope and there is a future that you haven't learned about yet. Amen. And that's the thing that God says to those who are the righteous. Ruth 
has completely surrendered her life, her soul, her ambitions, her future. She has completely surrendered everything to God. And so now, here at the opening of chapter 2, verse number 1, God says, don't give up yet because there is so much to come that I've already prepared for you. You didn't know about it, but I've already gotten it taken care of. Remember Orpah? The one who went back to Moab and she's going back to the demon god Kamash and she's looking for a man. She is missing out on this blessing of the Almighty. She should have come. She should have been a part of this. Because Naomi, she's got a relative. Well, this is how God set it up for the nation of Israel. The way that God set it up is that he said, family, you got to look after family. That if you have a family member who has been widowed, or if they've been sold into slavery, or if they have fallen into poverty, that we're going to be a society who loves each other, and we're going to be legally responsible to provide for the needy ones within our family. And there was such a thing as a kinsman redeemer. Sometimes a young lady would take a husband and something would happen to him. He would die. There wouldn't be any children. And, uh, and now it's like the family line has been threatened or it's ended. And God says, hang on a second. I have a kinsman redeemer. I have a substitute, somebody who can stand in and be the hero and bring you back to the status that God wants you to have. Now this, in Ruth chapter 2, verse number 1, is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. When we look at this guy that is here named Boaz in chapter 1, this is nothing but a picture of what Christ has done for us. We had no hope. We had no future. We had no relationship with God. And then Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he stood in as our substitute, lived life on our behalf. And guess who the Bible calls us? We are the bride of Christ. Why? Because he's our kinsman redeemer. He's the one who takes over our lives and gives us the standing before God that God wants us to have. They don't know it yet. They're coming in penniless and hopeless and no future, but God's got it already worked out. Do you see why? We don't need to plan out our lives and go, here's what I'm going to do and this and this and this and this. What we should plan to do is totally, completely surrender to God and he will work it out. He will point us in the right direction and keep us from the wrong direction and he will weigh into all of the decisions that we're trying to make for his honor. You ought to be able to look over your life and you ought to be able to see so many benefits, so many things that have happened to you that you could have never planned out. 
but God somehow worked it out on your behalf. That is what is normal for the children of God. He's got this relative from the clan of Elimelech. This is a guy who is a part of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, part of his family. And so he's the guy who has the legal obligation to make sure that you guys are going to be okay. And so he's not just a little guy. He's a man of standing. This is somebody who has a reputation in the community. He has money. He has influence. He has assets. And uh, it just so happened that God had put him in position and had blessed him in such a way that he could be that blessing to Ruth that God is going to supply He's a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And so contrast to his Orpah, she's going back to Moab and she has to find herself a man and she has to do just the right things and maybe compromise here and there to get the right guy or to get him to commit or whatever. And here is Ruth on the other hand God has the whole table spread out just waiting for her to feast. This is a man of standing. Now, what's the likelihood that you can find somebody who is not just single, but somebody who is stable and who has assets and who has this personality that is loving and godly and friendly. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have any kids. He is not obligated. He is not in debt. He's not in trouble. He doesn't have these spots on his reputation where you gotta go, well, you know, I think I can work with that. This is the bachelor of the decade. What is the likelihood that she's going to be able to come and find somebody, no emotional baggage, no financial baggage, no family baggage, just the perfect guy. What are the chances of that happening? She's going back to Bethlehem, and she's not thinking she's going to be able to find somebody anytime soon, and and besides, she's a foreigner, and nobody knows her. And uh, so many of the guys who are out there are ungodly, and they're not living for God. And that's why the nation is under judgment. How is it possible that I'm going to be able to find the right person? Somebody who will really appreciate me and love me for who I am, and, and somebody who loves God, and somebody who is generous, and somebody who has no baggage and nothing negative about them at all. What are the chances I'm going to be able to find the perfect guy? Let me tell you what the chances are. There's not a chance in the world that she's going to find somebody like that. 
except for God. God is the one who takes the impossible situation and he makes it possible. Why is God doing this for her? Why is it that she is going to be the one to get the perfect guy? Don't you know that there are women who got their eyes on him? Don't you know there are women who are trying to hit on him, get his attention? But God just saves the perfect guy for Ruth. Why? Because in chapter 1, Ruth makes this spectacular commitment. She said that your God will be my God. I'm turning my back on everything from my pagan past, and I'm turning fully, completely, wholly over to God. I'm coming under his protection, his provision, and I'll let him work out the details of my life. I'm not compromising. I'm doing it totally God's way. You think that God's going to ignore that? <laughs> Not a chance. There are women, there are men who are under the judgment of God. And God says, Ruth, I'm just going to steer you like right down through the middle of this. And I'm going to just make your path straight and smooth. And I'm just going to work everything out for you because you're the one. In the midst of the judgment, in the midst of all the stuff that's going on, you're the one that has made that unconditional surrender to God. You know where Ruth is holding back from God? Nothing. Everything is on the altar. Nothing held back. Hey, God, I'm going to do it your way, but over here, you know, I'm going to do something a little bit different. i got to compromise over here to make this piece happen. Nope. Everything is on the altar. Everything is given to God. And God, she, she just finds what God wants all of us to find. That if you give yourself completely to God, and you completely do it God's way, God says, got you. But God, it's a bad economy. I got you. But there are no more men. I got you. I got you. And that's what we get from Ruth. Yep. Foundations of our nation collapsing. And to those who are just right with God and just won't take any other path and won't do anything different, God says, I got you. Let's pray, shall we? I pray to God that you would take your word, let it live in our hearts. It's so easy for us to resign ourselves to just being average Christians and doing the average church thing 
and not really being totally in love with the God of heaven and earth. So easy to be religious. So easy to just pray and read a little Bible, do a few good deeds here, give an offering here and there. But we want to thank you, dear God, that you've been so clear all throughout the Bible that you are sick and tired of religion. That you're wanting people to be totally sold out and totally in love with you and totally right with you, not holding anything back. That they can get over themselves and over their careers and over their selfish ambitions and just totally sell out to God. Put everything on the altar and just totally trust that God will take care of me if I just totally commit everything to him. Pray that you would help us, dear God. Get beyond ourselves. Get beyond our shallow religion. And have an own fire relationship with God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.